and open up to Matthew 19, and we start a new section, and we come to a, a section that uh, many people approach with fear and trembling, especially in our modern age, because it deals with divorce, and I think that uh, as I've walked through this passage this week, uh, I can add to uh, some, of our, some of our understanding of this passage, and I think that when we walk out of here, we'll all understand it very clearly, and uh, I think we'll be satisfied with what we, with what we learn. We'll, we'll sense that we are indeed hearing God's Word. Okay? So we're in Matthew chapter 19, and we're going to look at, we start this new section, we look at verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings. What sayings? Well, the sayings in chapter 18 about forgiveness and uh, 70 times 7. Remember that? So now after that teaching, it says, that he departed from Galilee, that's in the north, and he came to the region of Judea, that is in the southern region of Palestine, beyond the Jordan. So he moves southward down toward the capital city of Jerusalem, and he's going to take the eastern route on the other side of the Jordan River. And he will never return to his hometown again. This is it. He says goodbye to his hometown. He says goodbye to Galilee, uh, where his hometown is located. Now, immediately we begin to see several groups that come around Jesus as he's heading toward the south. And first we see a group that is with him, who stands for him. You see that in verse 2. And great multitudes followed him. These are the common people. And he healed them there. Now notice this that one sentence, he heals them there, and we sort of read over it as if this is a normal thing. Whole crowds of people, many sick, and he just what? And just heals them there. Now, we know earlier in the book, Matthew takes certain case histories, and he tells us about how Jesus actually healed a person, and the dynamics of it. We're so used to it that and he doesn't feel he has to do that anymore. We've read the individual stories, and so now we know what that means. He just he heals them, just like that. And if he were here today, I think if he was in this room, and we asked him, Lord, heal us, wouldn't you think he would do it? I think he would. And uh, so that's what happens. These are people who are for him. They have expectations. And then we come to verse 3, and we see those who are against him. Okay? And we're introduced to the Pharisees. It says the Pharisees also came to him. Now watch this. Look at this next word. Testing him. Tempting him. Uh, these are religious people. The only two kinds of people that Jesus had big words for. And one were religious people. He hated hypocrisy. And the Pharisees were pietists. They were pious people at least in their own understanding of the word. But they came across as arrogant. They came across as hypocritical. And uh, he doesn't say very many nice things about religious people, nor does he say many nice things about politicians. Two kinds of people, uh, which is very interesting. So here are the Pharisees, and they're coming here for one purpose, and that's to trap him. They want to trap him. So verse 3 goes on to say that they ask him a question. They say to him, is it lawful? And the key word there is lawful. 
And you need to understand the word lawful in Jewish terms. Okay? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason, for any cause? Now, in Jesus' day, there were two major opinions. One rabbi named Hillel said, a man could divorce his wife for any reason. All he had to do was say, that's it, I'm finished. And in the commentaries, the rabbinical commentaries on the law, and you've heard this before, men actually have the right to divorce their wives if the wives burnt their toes. It was that something. And if you could divorce for that reason, you could divorce for any reason. Rabbi Shimon said that you could only divorce your wife for immorality if she had an affair with another man. So those were the two opinions. These are rabbis explaining the law, the law of Israel. So they say, can a man divorce his wife for any reason, for any cause? Okay. Notice it's a man divorcing his wife. You see that? This is written from a man's perspective. In Judaism, women had no rights to divorce their husbands. Now, the Roman Empire, they had a law that granted women the right to divorce. But under Jewish law, only the men could divorce their wives. Women were considered property. Protected property. And this understanding is still seen in our marriage vows. Where it says, who giveth this woman? See, she's owned by somebody. Somebody has to give her away. And then the other part says, and do you take this woman? So she's property. She's being prop she's property that's being passed back and forth. And so this is written from a man's perspective of the Jewish law. Can a man divorce his wife for any reason? So here Jesus responds, and he responds with what we call a rhetorical question. It's a rhetorical question is the kind of question that uh, the answer is obvious. Okay, so look what he says in verse 4. He answered, and he said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? Have you not read at the beginning that in the beginning God made them male and female? Do you think they had read that? Had they read Genesis? Yes, they read Genesis. And said, for this reason, he made a male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Notice it says, for this reason. You see that in verse 5? For this reason. For what reason? The reason that God is the one who created marriage between a man and a woman. Uh, God set the parameters of marriage. It, the standard for marriage in God's eyes is monogamy. He created a man and a woman. And for this reason, they should get married. The man leaves his father and his mother, joined to his wife, and the two become one flesh, which speaks of physical intimacy. So monogamy is 
God's standard. One commentator said this, if God wanted us to live a solitary life, he would have created one person. If God wanted us to be polygamous, in the beginning he would have created one man and two women, or one man and many women, or vice versa. He wanted to be polygamous. If God wanted us to be have a homosexual relationship, he would have created two people of the same sex. But God, in the beginning, created one man and one woman that they would be joined together for life. So God wants monogamy. And uh, so, would he want divorce? No, what he wants is a lifelong relationship that's monogamous. Now, verses 4 and 5 are a question. So they said, he says, have you not read this? And the answer is, yes, we've read this. That's the expected answer. Now look at verse 6. So then, in light of that original intent, so then, they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. So the two, men and women, become one. They are one flesh. They're no longer living apart. The man leaves his father and his mother. The girl's father gives her to the man. They're joined together. They become one flesh. That's the marriage contract, your marriage covenant. Now look in the middle of verse 6. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So that's God's intention. The question is, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? And here's God's intention, is that these people remain married. So anyone who would separate the two would diverge from the divine order of creation. Uh, this is what cost John the Baptist his head when he saw that King Herod divorced his wife and married his brother Philip's wife. And John called him the task, and he ends up losing his head. So now that's Jesus' question. And that's Jesus' conclusion. Now look at verse 6. The Pharisees respond with a question, or verse 7, the Pharisees respond with a question of their own. They said to him, now this is very important, why then, if that's the case, if that's God's intention, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorcement and put her away. If God's intent were for two people to be married continually, then was Moses going against the will of God by allowing people to get divorced? <coughs> it's a good question. I like that question. I think that's a great question. And uh, if I said, how would you answer that if I said this? Do you think Moses in allowing people, actually it doesn't say allowing them, commanding people uh, to be given the letter of divorcement. Do you think he was going against God's will? Do you think it's a trick question? Do you think it's a real question? <clears throat> well, let me just ask it straight. How many here think that Moses was going against... This is Moses now, right? He's the one who has the Ten Commandments, has the law. How many think Moses was going against God's will? 
<laughs> no one wants to answer anything. <laughs> How many think Moses was in God's will? Well, that's good. I'm glad you did it that way. It's pretty good. Uh, obviously, Moses is not going against God's will. So what in the world is happening? Here's what happens. God's intent, man and a woman to get married, stay that way. But they didn't do that. Men, men began to abandon their wives. Just started doing what they wanted. Run around with that gal. Run away with that girl. Leaving their wives very vulnerable. Because wives were what? Property. So Moses steps in and he says, hey, we need to protect the wife here. The innocent victim in this situation. And he says that uh, you know, you need to write a letter of divorcement. You need to give it to your wife. He's doing this as a, is to protect the wife, in a sense. Now, also, you need to realize that um, prior to the law, you've got creation, and you got the law of Moses. Is that right? Creation and the law of Moses. Did anybody live between that period of time? I guess there were millions of people lived during that time. God's intent was for people to get married, and guess what? Prior to the law, guess what men were doing? Guess what men do today? They were running around, dumping their wives. No law now. Why is there not a law? Does anybody know why there wasn't a law at this time? Because there wasn't a nation of Israel. The law was established... For who? The nation of Israel. The law was the law for the nation of Israel, and that's how the nation operated. It operated on a series of laws, the Ten Commandments, and a whole bunch of other laws. We have a nation, we operate on laws. Before we were a nation, there was some really crazy things that were going on in this country. Before Utah was a state, guess what the Mormons were doing? Polygamy. How could they get away with it? Because there was no law out there. They were not part of the United States. When they petitioned to be a state, guess what the government said? No polygamy. And so guess what they had to do if they wanted to become a state? Well, suddenly the prophet got a revelation that God said we shouldn't practice polygamy anymore. Now, prior to the law, before there was a nation of Israel, men were just abandoning their wives, doing whatever they wanted to do, leaving these girls vulnerable. God delivers Israel. They become a state. They become a nation. They set up walls. Moses sees what's happening. He says women need to be protected. He establishes this law that a letter of uh, divorcement has to be written and given to that woman, which would then allow her to get remarried. Look at verse 8. Jesus said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives 
But from the beginning, it wasn't so. That's not how it was when God created marriage at the beginning of time. So, why does Jesus say Moses allowed men to divorce their wives? It's because of what? Hardness of the heart. Do you see that? This explains why chapter 19 comes after chapter 18, by the way. Because chapter 18 is all about hardness of heart. Those who refuse to repent, hey, your brother sins against you, go to him one on one, he says. I'm not talking about Take two or three, he says. He rebuffs them. Take it to the church, he rebuffs them. Look, look at that hardness of heart. Do you see that? And then, person does repent. What are we supposed to do? Forgive them. But guess what a lot of people say? Oh, I'm never forgive that person. I'm not going to forgive that person. You know what they did to me? But why wouldn't you forgive the person? Hardness of heart. And now we have a situation here. Why does a man get rid of his wife? Just an old callous heart. He's tired of her. Doesn't matter what the reason is. Does not like her better? Or maybe he doesn't like the way she spends her money. Maybe he doesn't like the way she cleans the house. Doesn't really matter. Just hardness of heart. Moses saw this happening. Doesn't matter what the issue is. Moses sees that for hardness of heart, callousness, stubbornness, pride, arrogance, a man dumps his wife. But, Jesus said, that's not the way it was supposed to be. So, Jesus takes on this issue, and look what he says in verse 9. He said, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, some translations say fornication, and marries another woman, commits adultery. So, Jesus says, Really, the only grounds for a marriage to be broken would be someone cheating on each other, having an intimate relationship with somebody other than your wife. Because marriage, the two people become one flesh. That one flesh is broken when one of the members goes and has an affair with someone else. It's no longer one flesh. That has been broken. On that basis, there is no more marriage. That is the basis for divorce. Because the one flesh has been broken. So Jesus is basically saying that infidelity is a legitimate basis for divorce. Okay? But because the wife burns the toast, is that a legitimate basis? That doesn't break the one flesh because she burned the toast. Because she always sides with the kids against you. Well, that hasn't broken the one flesh. I mean, that might not be a good thing to do, but the one flesh isn't broken. But, to go out and have an affair with somebody else, the one flesh is now broken. And so thus, that becomes a basis for divorce. And uh, Jesus recognizes that. Now look in the middle of verse 9. He says this, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another, does what? Commits adultery. And whoever marries the wife, his former wife, commits adultery. Okay? So what we have here is that um, 
Unless infidelity is the reason for the divorce, the other reasons Jesus said are really not valid according to God's standards. So, the wife burns the toast, and the man says, I'm finished with you! And now look what he does. Wait, she burns the toast. Is the one that's broken yet? No. But he says, I'm finished with you! Hardness of heart. He goes and just grabs on to another one. So what has he actually done here? Committed adultery. She's in trouble. She's left vulnerable. What does she do? Goes marries another, and the guy who marries her commits adultery. So read that verse and see how that works out. I say, uh, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, sexual immorality, and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. So, here's this innocent woman, husband leaves her, goes with somebody else, she's stuck out here, and what can she do? She has to feed her kids, she doesn't have a place to live, she ends up having to get married to somebody else. And that guy marries her. That's what's going on here. So Moses, seeing this happen, says, look, we need to have a rule. We need to have a law in the state of Israel. We can't have adultery going on all around. So Moses establishes a law that says that if a man wants to divorce his wife, he needs to give her a certificate, a legal document of divorce. Hey, this is a legal document. This is a lawful issue. This is a lawful issue. Don't make this something spiritual, super spiritual. This is the nation of Israel trying to control its people and keep some sort of semblance of order when things are getting out of hand, he says you will write a legal document and you will give her the certificate of divorcement, which will then legally allow her to marry another man without there being any adultery committed. So we will, I will recapitulate this in a moment and explain how all this fits together. Now, we see his disciples because they come into the scene in verse 10. And they chirp up. They're real concerned when they hear this discussion. And they said, if, if such is the case of a man and his wife, man, if, if this is what it's going to take, you have to make it through, for better or for worse, no matter what, except for one exception. You know something? It's better not to get married. How many people say amen to that many times? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, better, it's just better not to get married. Uh, there's no way out. It's just, why should you get into such a matter? It's better just to stay single. So, uh, Jesus responds. And uh, he said to them, well, all cannot accept this thing. All can't stay married, single. But only those to whom it has been given. All cannot accept this saying about singleness, but only to those to whom it has been given. There are two key words there, the word accept, which means make room for, literally. Not everyone can live this single life. See, that's what he said in verse 11. Not all can accept this, but only those to whom it has been what? given. The singleness is a gift. 
It's something that has to be given to a person. It takes God's power to remain single and not get married. Now look at verse 12. He explains. Starts off with the word for. Because there are eunuchs who are born thus from their mother's womb. Uh, some people have to remain single because they have a congenital problem. There's no choice of their own. They're born that way. And they will remain single all their life. Okay? And, look at the next thing. There are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. The choice was made for them. In the first case, they were eunuchs by no choice of their own. It was a congenital. Others will remain single because they were made eunuchs by men. Somebody else made the choice for them. And this is what happened when a king had a harem. And he had an attendant who was going to take care of his many wives in the harem. He didn't want any hanky-panky going on. So he would neuter that man who was going to watch the women. And that guy, that's how things took, took place. We see the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, who was the assistant to the queen. Uh, why was he a eunuch? I guess the king made him a eunuch. No hanky-banky with the queen. But that's the second kind of person that would remain single the rest of the life. And then finally in verse 12, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom's sake. Now here he's using eunuchs in a metaphorical way, simply means single in a sense. There are those who have made themselves, who are eunuchs, who decided to remain single for the kingdom's sake. He who is able to accept it, if you're able to accept that, being single, let him accept it. If you can stay single, stay single, you'll have a lot less problems. <laughs> this is the big, but it's for the kingdom's sake, not for your sake. It's really not that you'll have less problems. This is to serve the kingdom. This is the basis for the priesthood in the Roman Catholic Church that that's why nuns remain single in the Catholic Church. Look, this is why we see uh, missionaries, many famous women missionaries remain single. They remain single for the kingdom's sake. Hey, in our own church, remember the women who remain single that worked for Dr. Criswell all those years? For the kingdom's sake. Jesus himself remained single for the kingdom's sake. John the Baptist likely was single for the kingdom's sake. Paul speaks about this in 1 Corinthians 7, the importance of for those who can to remain single. So the disciples say, hey, and Jesus says, well, what you say is pretty good. It might be great to remain single, but you know, you should only remain single. It's really something that should be for the kingdom's sake, so you can serve the kingdom. Now we see a third, a fourth group. So we saw the healed people. We see the Pharisees. We see the disciples. And now we see a fourth group. And look in verse 13. Then little children were brought to him. So here are parents bringing their children to Jesus. For what purpose? That he might put his hand on them and pray. Uh, we've dealt with marriage in this chapter. We've dealt with celibacy in this chapter. Now we're going to deal with the children in this chapter. 
Parents bring the children, this was a custom of the Jewish people, to bring their children to a rabbi that he could bless the children, pray for them. This is the basis, these are the kinds of verses that become the basis for our child dedication services in church. So, they bring their children to be blessed by Jesus and the disciples in verse 13 rebuke them. Come on, Jesus doesn't have time for this nonsense. Get those kids out here. Come on. That's the W.C. Fields, you know, mentality about children. Get away, get them, kick you. <laughs> uh, the disciples are always such nice people when it comes to children. But Jesus said, and this is a command, let the little children come to me. That's a positive. And do not forbid them. That is an instruction about what they are doing in the negative. Jesus always has time for the children. He always has time for the weak. He always has time for the marginal. He always has time for those who have no power. He always has time for the helpless. He might rebuff the Pharisee, but he'll accept the children. And we're just the opposite usually. We'll like to rub shoulders with the big boys. But we don't have time for the little people. But Jesus always has time for those people who are on the margins. And so, he's going to use these children as an object lesson. In verse 14, it says this. He said, let the little children come to me. Don't forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of God. He didn't say children are going to be in the kingdom. He says people like children. Such. People who are weak, people who are helpless, people who have nowhere to turn but to God and trust Him. They are the ones who will be in the kingdom. Those who are defenseless, those who are powerless, those who have to trust God to take care of their needs. And He laid His hands on them and He departed from there, again, just heading southward. So with Jesus, no one is unimportant. Now, let me uh, close by just making a few comments and recapitulating this whole thing. And I'm going to try to put it in order so you can see where I'm coming from in this study. Okay? Number one, God's intent was for marriage between a man and a woman, lifelong. That was the ideal. Okay? That was the ideal. Number two, we do not live in an ideal world. We are living in a world that has fallen. Okay? We do not live in an ideal world. Okay? From Jesus' standpoint, the only real basis for a broken marriage would be infidelity. At least that would have been God's, the way God would see it. In those situations, divorce would be permissible. But, people didn't follow God's original intent. They didn't live by God's ideal. Men just abandoned their wives whenever they wanted to, for any old reason. Wouldn't shacked up with somebody else. Here's the original wife, and she just left there with the kids. <coughs> dirty diapers. No money. No place to stay. This goes on even when the nation of Israel is formed, and Moses sees this. And he steps up 
And he says, we need to regulate this. And here's the law. And this is going to be the law that this nation is going to be based on as far as divorce is concerned. If a man wants to leave his wife, it will be required of him by the state of Israel, by the law of this land, that he get a legal document called a certificate of divorce and he hand it to her, which will legally dissolve that marriage. That's a legal act. At which time now she is legally able to remarry another man, and a man is able to remarry her without it being considered adultery. And this is the, this is the law of the land. So it freed people to remarry. Next statement I want to say is divorce dissolves the marriage. Once you've been given a letter of Certificate of divorce, the marriage is divorced, is, is uh, dissolved. Singleness is an option. Before you get married, it's an option after you get divorced if you can handle it. But you might, might not be able to handle it. So if you can't handle singleness before you get married, guess what you should do? Get married. If you can't handle singleness after a letter of divorcement's been given, guess what you can do? You can get married. That's what Moses said. That was the law of the state of Israel. Not everyone can accept singleness. We realize that. Okay. If you've been divorced in the past for wrong reasons, you remarry. You know, it's not one of the reasons Jesus gave, and you remarry. Recognize your mistake, and guess what? Get on with your life. Forget about it. You've been forgiven. Don't live under guilt. Don't live under condemnation. Look, what you need to do is realize now you're a mature Christian. From now on, what are we going to do? Try to live by the will of God or we get on with life. And that's what I think that this text is talking about. Uh, that law, that, that, that certificate of divorcement was a legal paper. It's just like we're not living in Israel anymore, are we? I don't think we are. Some people might think we are, but we're not. We're living in America. And guess what? We have a law. And what's our law? The law is, the person gets divorced, they file for divorce legally, they get divorced, and the person that gets divorced, the two people get divorced, can they get remarried again according to the law of America? Yes. Is that God's ideal intent? No. But guess what? If you don't have the law, there's total chaos. People are left hanging out there, you know, on the line without any means of support. So, they had, we have laws in the land, and this was a law that Israel had in its land to bring about some sort of order regarding this whole process. So, that's my take on it. I think it's the right take. I have worked on this passage all week long. I've discussed it with a couple other people who are smarter than I am. And I think that... Uh, I think the law, the law of our land permits divorce. The law of Israel's land permitted divorce. And both parties are protected because of the law. Okay, next week we'll talk about a man called a rich young ruler who wants to know what it takes to get into the kingdom of God. Uh, Lord, we thank you that those of us who have made mistakes can recognize them, get on with our life. 
And those of us are the people of God who are mature. should seek to live by that ideal. We shouldn't uh, take advantage of the law of the land just to get divorced because we want to. That's not what you'd want Christians to do. You'd want Christians to live by the ideal. So help us to learn to do that. Help us to make that our goal. Help us to, to, to strive for that kind of perfection. Help us to be people who live by grace, Lord, when we realize that people make mistakes. Help us not to be hard toward them. Help us to have soft hearts. Help us to forgive them and forgive ourselves for the many mistakes that we have done as well. So, Lord, help us to put this in perspective and help us to uh, not be hung up on all these intricacies. And, uh, from this point on, Lord, help us to serve you wholeheartedly. Christ, thank you, Christ.